Chapter Four of Our Village, Volume One by Mary Russell Mitford. Read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, 2020. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume One. Chapter Four Modern Antiques. Early in the present century, there lived in the ancient town of B two complete and remarkable specimens of the ladies of eighty years ago. Ladies cased inwardly and outwardly in Addison and Whalebone. How they had been preserved in this entireness, amidst the collision and ridicule of a country town, seemed as puzzling a question as the preservation of bees in amber, or mummies in pyramids, or any other riddle that serves to amuse the naturalist or the antiquarian. But so it was. They were old maids and sisters, and so alike in their difference from all other women that they may best be described together any little non-resemblance may be noted afterwards. It was no more than nature, prodigal of variety, would make in two leaves from the same oak tree. Both, then, were as short as women well could be, without being entitled to the name of dwarf, or carried about to fairs for a show. Both were made considerably shorter, by the highest of all high heels, and the tallest of all tall caps, each of which artificial elevations was as ostentatiously conspicuous as the legs and cover of a pipkin, and served equally to add to the squatness of the real machine. Both were lean, wrinkled, withered and old. Both enveloped their aged persons in the richest silks, displayed over large hoops, and stays the tightest and stiffest that pinched in a beauty of George the Second's reign. The gown was of that make, formerly I believed called a sack, and of a pattern so enormous that one flower with its stalks and leaves would nearly cover the three quarters of a yard in length of which the tail might at a moderate computation consist. Over this they wore a gorgeously figured apron, whose flourishing white embroidery vied in size with the plants on the robe, a snowy muslin neckerchief rigidly pinned down, and over that a black lace tippet of the same shape, parting at the middle to display a gay breast-knot. The riband of which this last decoration was composed was generally of the same hue with that which adorned the towering lappeted cap, a sort of poppy colour which they called pompadour. The sleeves were cut off below the elbows with triple ruffles of portentous length, Brown leather mittens with peaks turned back and lined with blue satin, and a variety of rings in an odd out-of-fashion variety of enamelling and figures of hair, completed the decoration of their hands and arms. The carriage of these useful members was at least equally singular. They had adapted themselves in a remarkable manner to the little taper wasp-like point in which the waist ended to which elbows, ruffles and all, adhered as closely as if they had been glued, while the ringed and mittened hands, when not employed in knitting, were crossed saltier-wise in front of the apron. The other termination of their figure was adorned with black stuff shoes, very peaked with points upwards and massive silver buckles. Their walking costume was, in winter, a black silk cloak lined with rabbit skins with holes for the arms, in summer another tippet and a calash, no bonnet could hold the turreted cap. Their motion out of doors was indescribable. It most nearly resembled sailing. 
they seemed influenced by the wind in a way incidental to no moving thing except a ship or a shuttlecock and indeed one boisterous blowing night about the equinox when standing on some high stone steps waiting for a carriage to take her home from a party the wind did catch one of them and but for the intervention of a tall footman who seized her as one would seize a fly-away umbrella and held her down by main force the poor little lady would have been carried up like an air balloon her feelings must have been pretty much similar to those of gulliver in brobdingnag when flown away with by the eagle half a minute later and she was gone so far they were exact counterparts the chief variation lay in the face amidst the general hue of age and wrinkles you could just distinguish that mrs theodosia had been brown and mrs francis fair there was a yellow shine here and there amongst the white hairs curiously rolled over a cushion high above the forehead that told of fanny's golden locks whilst the purely grey rouleau of mrs theodosia showed its mixture of black and white still plainer mrs francis too had the blue eye with a laughing light which so often retains its flash to extreme age while mrs theodosia's orbs bright no longer had once been hazel mrs theodosia's aquiline nose and long sociable chin evinced that disposition to meet which is commonly known by the name of a pair of nutcrackers mrs francis's features on the other hand were rather terse and sharp still there was in spite of these material differences that look of kindred that inexplicable and indefinable family likeness which is so frequently found in sisters greatly increased in the present case by a similarity in the voice that was quite startling both tongues were quick and clear and high and rattling to a degree that seemed rather to belong to machinery than to human articulation and when welcomes and how-d'ye-do's were pouring both at once on either side a stranger was apt to gaze in ludicrous perplexity as if beset by a ventriloquist or haunted by strange echoes when the immediate cackle subsided they were easily distinguished mrs theodosia was good and kind and hospitable and social mrs francis was all that and was besides shrewd and clever and literary to a degree not very common in her day though not approaching to the pitch of a blue stocking lady of the present accident was partly the cause of this unusual love of letters they had known richardson had been admitted amongst his flower garden of young ladies and still talked familiarly of miss highmore miss fielding miss collier and miss mulso they had never learned to call her mrs chapone latterly the taste had been renewed and quickened by their having the honour of a distant relationship to one of the most amiable and unfortunate of modern poets so mrs francis studied novels and poetry in addition to her sister's sermons and cookery books though as she used to boast without doing a stitch the less of knitting or playing a pool the fewer in the course of the year their usual occupations were those of other useful old ladies superintending the endowed girls school of the town with a vigilance and a jealousy of abuses that might have done honour to mr hume 
taking an active part in the more private charities, donations of flannel petticoats or the loan of baby things, visiting in a quiet way, and going to church whenever the church door was open. Their abode was a dwelling ancient and respectable like themselves, that looked as if it had never undergone the slightest variation inside and out since they had been born in it. The rooms were many, low and small, full of little windows with little panes and chimneys stuck perversely in the corners. The furniture was exactly to correspond. Little patches of carpets in the middle of the slippery dry rubbed floors, tables and chairs of mahogany, black with age, but exceedingly neat and bright, and Japan cabinets and old china which Mr. Beckford might have envied, treasures which have either never gone out of fashion or have come back in again. The garden was beautiful and beautifully placed. A series of terraces descending to rich and finely timbered meadows, through which the slow, magnificent Thames rolled under the chalky hills of the pretty village of Sea. It was bounded on one side by the remains of an old friary, the end wall of a chapel with a Gothic window of open tracery in high preservation, as rich as point lace. It was full, too, of old-fashioned durable flowers, jessamine, honeysuckle, and the high-scented fraxinella. I never saw that delicious plant in such profusion. The garden walks were almost as smooth as the floors, thanks to the two assiduous serving maidens. Nothing like a man-servant ever entered this maidenly abode. Who attended it? One, the under-damsel, was a stout strapping country wench, changed from time to time as it happened. The other was as much a fixture as her mistress's. She had lived with them for forty years, and except being twice as big and twice as tall, might have passed for another sister. She wore their gowns, the two just made her one, caps, ruffles and aprons, talked with their voices and their phrases, followed them to church and school and market, scolded the schoolmistress, heard the children their catechism, cut out flannel petticoats and knit stockings to give away. Never was so complete an instance of assimilation. She had even become like them in face. Having a brother who resided at a beautiful seat in the neighbourhood, and being to all intents and purposes of the patrician order, their visitors were very select, and rather more from the country than the town. Six formed the general number, one table, a rubber or a pool, seldom more. As the only child of a very favourite friend, I used during the holidays to be admitted as a supernumerary, at first out of compliment to Mamma, Latterly I stood on my own merits. I was found to be a quiet little girl, an excellent hander of muffins and cake, a connoisseur in green tea, an amateur of quadrille, the most entertaining of all games to a looker-on, and lastly and chiefly, a great lover and admirer of certain books, which filled two little shelves at cross corners with the chimney, namely that volume of Cooper's poems which contained John Gilpin, and the whole seven volumes of Sir Charles Grandison. With what delight I used to take down those dear books! It was an old edition, perhaps that very first edition which, as Mrs. Barbold says, the fine ladies used to hold up to one another at Ranelagh. 
and adorned with prints, oh, not certainly of the highest merit as works of art, but which served exceedingly to realise the story, and to make us, as it were, personally acquainted with the characters. The costume was pretty much that of my worthy hostesses, especially that of the two Miss Selby's. There was even in Miss Nancy's face a certain likeness to Mrs. Francis. I remember I used to wonder whether she carried her elbows in the same way. How I read and believed and believed and read, and liked Lady G, though I thought her naughty, and gave all my wishes to Harriet, though I thought her silly, and loved Emily with my whole heart. Clementina I did not quite understand, nor, I am half afraid to say so, do I now, and Sir Charles I positively disliked. He was the only thing in the book that I disbelieved. Those bowings seemed incredible. At last, however, I extended my faith even to him, partly influenced by the irresistibility of the author, and partly by the appearance of a real living beau, who in the matter of bowing might almost have competed with Sir Charles himself. This beau was no other than the town member, who with his brother was, when in the country, the constant attendant at these chosen parties. Our member was a man of seventy, or thereabout, but wonderfully young-looking and well-preserved. It was said, indeed, that no fading belle was better versed in cosmetic secrets or more devoted to the duties of the toilette. Fresh, upright, unwrinkled, pearly-teethed, and point device in his accoutrements, he might have passed for fifty, and doubtless often did pass for such when apart from his old-looking younger brother, who, tall, lanky, and shambling, long-visaged, and loosely dressed, gave a very vivid idea of Don Quixote when stripped of his armour. Never was so consummate a courtier as our member. Of good family and small fortune, he had early in life been seized with the desire of representing the town in which he resided, and canvassing, sheer canvassing, without eloquence, without talent, without bribery, had brought him in and kept him in. There his ambition stopped. To be a member of Parliament was with him not the means but the end of advancement. For forty years he represented an independent borough, and though regularly voting with every successive ministry, was at the end of his career as poor as when he began. He never sold himself, or stood suspected of selling himself. Perhaps he might sometimes give himself away, but that he could not help. It was almost impossible for him to say no to anybody, quite so to a minister or a constituent or a constituent's wife or daughter. So he passed bowing and smiling through the world, the most disinterested of courtiers, the most subservient of upright men, with little other annoyance than a septennial alarm, for sometimes an opposition was threatened, and sometimes it came. But then he went through a double course of smirks and handshakings, and all was well again. The great grievance of his life must have been the limitation in the number of francs. His apologies, when he happened to be full, were such as a man would make for a great fault, his lamentations such as might become a great misfortune. 
Of course there was something ludicrous in his courtliness, but it was not contemptible. It only wanted to be obviously disinterested to become respectable. The expression might be exaggerated, but the feeling was real. He was always ready to show kindness to the utmost of his power to any human being. He would have been just as civil and supple if he had not been an MP. It was his vocation. He could not help it. This excellent person was an old bachelor, and there was a rumour some forty or fifty years old that in the days of their bloom there had been a little love affair, an attachment, some even said an engagement, how broken none could tell, between him and Mrs. Francis. Certain it is that there were symptoms of flirtation still. His courtesy, always gallant to every female, had something more real and more tender towards Fanny, as he was wont to call her, and Fanny, on her side, was as conscious as heart could desire. She blushed and bridled, fidgeted with her mittens on her apron, flirted a fan nearly as tall as herself, and held her head on one side with that peculiar air which I have noted in the Shire birds and ladies in love. She manoeuvred to get him next to her at the tea-table, liked to be his partner at whist, loved to talk of him in his absence, and knew to an hour the time of his return, and did not dislike a little gentle raillery on the subject. Even I, oh, but traitorous to my sex, how can I jest with such feelings? Rather let me sigh over the world of woe that in fifty years of hopeless constancy must have passed through that maiden heart. The timid hope, the sickening suspense, the slow, slow fear, the bitter disappointment, the powerless anger, the relenting, the forgiveness, and then again that interest, kinder, truer, and more unchanging than friendship, that lingering woman's love. Oh, how can I jest over such feelings? They're passed away, for she is gone, and he, but they clung to her to the last, and ceased only in death. End of chapter 4